In the words of the Apostle Paul in our epistle reading for this morning, grace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the time of year when we often focus on the miracles of Christmas. And surely there are a great many. There is Elizabeth, the elderly woman in menopause or perhaps even beyond, who has never given birth to a child, who suddenly finds herself pregnant and not with just any baby, but John the Baptist, the one who would embody Elijah and proclaim that at last, all of the promises spoken through the prophets would finally be fulfilled. Or Mary, the virgin girl from Nazareth, who finds herself pregnant as well, miraculously, with Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us, with a boy she will call Yeshua, or Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves. We have the angels appearing to the shepherds out while they were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And of course, the miraculous star that guided the Magi from Persia all the way to Israel. But the point of miracles, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is not just to show that God can do amazing things. Even the natural world is full of evidence that God can do the miraculous. The point of the miracles is to point to something. The miracles have a point because they are pointers. In fact, in John's gospel, the miracles aren't called miracles at all. They're called signs. And they are meant to grab your attention and focus it on something specific. And chiefly, focus your attention on the promises of God made to the human race, fallen into sin, and to you and I, even now, the promises that God will continue to fulfill in us. We have many signs in our readings this morning and many different ways to approach them. And the first one comes in Isaiah with Ahaz, the king of Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom of the area we now know of as Israel or Palestine. While that kingdom had been united under David, Ahaz's ancestor, it split under Solomon's son into a northern kingdom called Israel, confusingly, and a southern kingdom called Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem, the very place where God said he would put his presence in the temple. So here we have a bit of a family feud. The north always going after the south, and the south always be concerned about what's happening in the north. And Ahaz finds himself in a bit of a panic because the northern tribes have aligned themselves with their northern partner, Syria, to attempt to invade the south and conquer it for themselves. Ahaz is the king. He has responsibility for protecting that kingdom. And he looks about to try and figure out a way out of this debacle. Maybe he needs an alliance with somebody else. Maybe he needs to forge an alliance, perish the thought, with the empire of Assyria, with Iraq. And together, they might be able to oppose Judah and or Israel and Syria. And so we find ourselves right before this morning's Old Testament reading 
out in the field with Ahaz as he checks the water reservoirs at the washer's field, strolling to and fro, checking his guards, his troops, and his protectors, and trying to decide how to keep his kingdom from being conquered. And then Isaiah shows up. We all love it when the pastor shows up, don't we? Because we know what the pastor is going to say. And Isaiah does not disappoint. What are you doing, O king? What do you think I'm doing, preacher man? I am getting ready for a military disaster. We are going to fall, and we are going to fall hard. What do you think I'm supposed to be doing? Isaiah sighs and looks at his king and says, you tried prayer? And reminds the king of the great promises that God has made to his house. Ahaz, of course, laughs. He has neither use for prayer or temple or the promises of God. Hashem, the Lord, will help those who help themselves is his motto. The kingdom that has God on its side wins. The kingdom that has the best defense and offense wins. And Ahaz can't distinguish between those two. Ahaz's God is his armies. It is his fortresses, and it is his alliances. Isaiah sighs again. You're the house of David. The Lord has made your ancestor David a promise that your house cannot fall. That a ruler from your house will sit on the throne of Judah and Israel forever. And so Isaiah turns to this king who has lost faith, who has lost hope, who doesn't know where to turn and does not trust God's promises anymore, and says, ask for a sign. Any sign. Highs the heavens, low is the abode of the dead. Anything that will help you trust the promises that God has already proclaimed to your house that the house of David cannot fall. But now it's Ahaz's turn to sigh. I'm going to leave religion up to you, preacher man. I don't need a sign. I don't want a sign. And so in frustration and anger, Isaiah at last lashes out at the king. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? Did you weary my God also? Flash forward 700 some odd years to another man, a man living in the town of Nazareth. That man's name is Joseph, a carpenter. He is not a king. He does not have direct promises spoken to him. He works with his hands. Maybe he works in the neighboring city of Sepphoris, which was the capital of the region. Nazareth, you could consider a suburb to that mighty city of both Gentile and Jew. You could probably even paint a picture in your own mind of Joseph, picking up his tools at the beginning of the day to trudge off to his workplace, work on another house, or maybe even one of the fortresses for the Roman soldiers. Another day of work among his fellow Jews, but also among the Gentiles. And this particular day, Joseph has a lot on his mind. You see, Joseph is engaged to a young girl from Nazareth, which means for all intents and purposes, they are married, just not living together yet. 
Now, Nazareth is not his hometown. It's not where he's from. He's there because that's where the work is. And somehow while he's there, single man, he gets hooked up with this wonderful young woman named Mary. Maybe the marriage was arranged by the village elders. Maybe it was Mary's family. Probably it was a little bit of both. But now as Joseph is carrying his tools off to the workplace, he's thinking about the news that he just received that Mary is pregnant. How? He doesn't know. Maybe she's cheated on him. Or maybe someone's forced himself on her. He doesn't really know. What Joseph does know is the word of the Lord. Joseph does know the promises and also the commands given by God through Moses. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. But Joseph loves Mary. He likes her family a lot. He can't see how this could have happened. Why should Mary die if it wasn't her fault? If no one finds out, maybe she can be spared. Maybe he can divorce her quietly and thus keep the law and Mary's life. Yes, people will blame Joseph for breaking off the marriage. They'll blame him for not being a good man, but Mary will be alive. And the baby as well. Do you know what would be great, though, Joseph thinks? If God could provide a sign. There was some sign God could give Joseph that he was doing the godly thing, that he was doing the righteous thing, that what he was doing was in accordance with God's will and not just his own. Joseph asks for a sign and he gets one. An angel a messenger with a dream message for Joseph that the virgin, his betrothed, his Mary will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called the Lord saves. He will be called the Lord is with you. He will be called Emmanuel. He will be called the son of David. And Joseph believes the sign. And because Joseph believes that sign, history is changed forever. And now people like you and I who come from all different corners of the world next weekend will celebrate the birth of that child. Because Joseph asked for a sign and received it. So what you see is a tale of two signs. Ahaz, who is told he can have any sign he wants, Anything that he needs to confirm his faith and trust in God, but will not ask. And Joseph, who just wants to do the right thing, who receives a sign that enables him to continue to put his trust in a God of mercy and grace, that God desires not the death of sinners, but that sinners be saved and live. And the question, therefore, for all of us this morning is what kind of person are we? Are we Ahaz? Or are we Joseph? Or like me, does it depend on the day of the week? Or even the hour of the day? Sometimes we ask God for the sign, and sometimes we would rather just depend on ourselves. Sometimes 
We can't but trust the promises of God, the good news that God is on our side, that he is Emmanuel, that he has saved us, that we will be raised to new life on the last day. But sometimes the bad news of invasions and sickness, disaster, violence and evil just clouds out God's promise. The same sign that he gives to the whole world, which is the sign of Emmanuel, Jesus. Christmas, you see, is more or less the story of signs wanted and signs ignored from beginning to end. The shepherds follow the sign of the angel to Bethlehem, but the people of Bethlehem themselves seem oblivious to all of the signs of what has happened in their town. The Magi follow the star all the way to Israel and yet end up going on to Bethlehem by themselves because the people of Jerusalem are scared of what's happening and even Herod is terrified by the sign and ignores it as well. And all of us who are gathered here this morning are also here because of a sign. That sign is Jesus. The one announced by Isaiah so many centuries ago. The one announced to Joseph in a dream. The one born in a manger who died on a cross, who rose from a tomb. Jesus is the sign of God's presence. Even as the world grows ever darker. Even when evil seems determined to cloud out God's mercy and gracious presence in his son. On that note, I can't help but quote here from our favorite author, Louise Penny. As she writes in one of her books, the skyline of Montreal was looming in the foreground now across the river. And Mount Royal rose in the middle of the city. A huge cross on top of the mountain was invisible now, but every night it sprang to life lit as a beacon to a population that no longer believed in the church. The cross didn't seem to care. It glowed just as bright. The cross and Jesus always glow just as bright. That's why it is a sign for us. Our faith comes, our faith goes. Sometimes we are Ahaz and sometimes we are Joseph. But Jesus is always Jesus. He is always our Redeemer. He is always Emmanuel. He is always the one whom we can call the Lord saves. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.